John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, and uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, I know that we're going to talk about an interesting accident today that just happened. And, uh, of course, those of us that are in the business and those of us that aren't in the business are shaking our head as to how an accident like this involving an ATR-72 in Nepal could have happened. And some of the early information that has come out on this particular accident really just makes you wonder about this thing we always call professionalism. I just gave a presentation at a local university that has a, a, a flying program, and it was a professional standards class that I talked in. And this is one of the very things that we talked about is doing the right thing, even when nobody's looking and being very disciplined in doing what it is you're supposed to be doing. I preach it all the time, execute with purpose. And, and people look at me, it's like, what are you talking about? Before you do anything, you better know what purpose you are, you have before you actually start moving a handle or moving a switch or flipping a die or whatever. You have to execute with purpose. And the way you do that is, again, the old Ronald Reagan thing, trust but verify. Not only if someone else is asking you to do something, but even yourself, trust but verify. Yeah, I trust I'm gonna do the right thing, but you gotta verify it. And I think this is a classic case of a lack of trust by an individual and a flight crew uh, to verify what was going on. Um, Todd, I know that you explored a lot of this stuff uh, for, for the show today, but, you know, Yeti Flight 691, I mean, this was an ATR-72. It's uh, one of the later versions of, uh, of the ATR-72. Um, it's, uh, it's being operated in Nepal. And this particular flight crew um, was getting some training done. That is the captain who uh, who was in the left seat was receiving, quote, familiarization training because they were now going to be operating at a brand new airport that had just opened up less than five miles from the old airport. And I think that uh, you were mentioning that they opened this airport and they had uh, scheduled service in there, yet not all of the requisite systems, especially the ILS, were up and running. 
And the, in addition to that, this was a, a visual approach. And from the videos that were shot of this accident, and this is one of the reasons why the entire world saw it, there was actually a video from inside the cabin, the passenger cabin, as well as a video on the ground that showed the uh, final few seconds of flight. Uh, it's a, a lovely day to fly. Uh, there was uh, no real need for a, an instrument approach because of weather. But uh, the thing that struck me was that this was, among other things, an unstabilized approach on a nice clear day. That in itself is not unusual. But in the preliminary report, it stated that three days prior, a different flight crew in the same aircraft flew into this airport. They too had an unstabilized approach. So it called into question, is this, is this a coincidence or is this something to do with the planning and execution of the procedures at this particular airport? Yeah. Not a flight crew issue as much as it may be also an organizational issue. Well, and you bring up a good point. And when uh, when this accident first happened, we did a show just after it happened and back in January. And I made mention because I had looked at the video that was circulating on the Internet. And it was the uh, the video from shot from inside the aircraft looking forward at the wing. And the first thing I noticed being that close to the airport is that the wing wasn't configured with landing flaps. Um, at that time, if you look at that video, I don't even think they had five degrees of flaps in or 15 degrees of flaps in. Um, they were still up. And now reading the preliminary report, it says that they did have 15 in, at some point and eventually put 30 in. But the accident was already in the midst of of happening because it was an afterthought, if you will. But John, you know, we've talked about, you know, crew resource management and really what does that mean? And is it really practiced all over the world as it should be? Here, we have very strict operational discipline. I think, you know, yes, do we get a little bit uh, out of sorts? And, and is that operational discipline kind of gets sloppy, lax? We've seen that in accidents, especially with Com Air um, 5191. And, um, and so when you look at those accidents, you got to call into question, where's the professionalism? Where's that operational discipline? And now in this particular instance, you have a captain who's being checked, if you will, to go into this new airport by a training captain. Where's that operational discipline? And you know, just right there, you got a captain on the airplane, a training captain, that's supposed to be watching what the other guy's doing. And, uh, and, and, mentioning to him when if he's doing something wrong where's the workload gone where's the workload that's normally done by the person that sits in that seat well who's doing it he's going to do one job or the other job you know you're going to have his mind switching back and forth where was i on the flying where am i on the on the monitoring and training going back and forth there should have been a third part he should have been sitting on the jump seat observing and commenting not flying well when you when you look at the the captain who was being checked uh, she was sitting in the left seat apparently she had done everything that was required of her to at least get into the airport environment um, they're now reconfiguring the airplane for landing and this is one of those errors where when you really look at the cockpit and if you understand cockpit design a lot of the handles if not all of the handles, but in this particular instance, this is a transport category airplane, handles have a methodology to them. 
So the flap handle is shaped like a flap, or at least to feel like a wing or an airfoil, if you will, because that's what defines it as a flap versus a thrust lever, um, which is designed totally different. It's, it's a knobby handle or some sort of handle like that that's very distinctive versus a propeller or condition lever handle, which in this case are really two squares. And when you look at the, the, the geometric shape of the condition levers against the single flap handle, how do you mistake those two? Because they are two totally different. Even if you're not looking at them, they feel different. But in this case, where you have a training captain sitting in the right seat, and the captain is asking, okay, I need flaps 30. And he, in this training captain, uh, mistakenly grabs both condition levers, not just one, both. How do you not feel that you're grabbing two squares versus something, a single handle that feels like a rounded top? It feels like an airfoil in your hand. I, I don't understand it, but we always talk about, you know, uh, and again, it's that trust, but verify. I know what I need to do, but how do I verify it? Well, I don't just trust my instincts or trust the touch. I got to look down and make sure that I've grabbed the right handle, moved the right switch, you know, gone to the right detent with uh, or, or gate with a particular handle that has a, you know, a ratcheting uh, motion to it. I, I just, it, it just is bewildering. And then on top of it, once the aircraft, once the condition levers were brought back to feather, how both of these crew members, and you got to remember, they're both captains. How do they not figure something really bad's happening and they try to continue this approach? In addition, there was a, a, a built into the system, a warning system. There was a master caution that sounded after the... Um, the, the propellers were feathered. Basically, you had zero thrust coming out of the engines or close to zero thrust. And there was a master caution that came up. That chime was silence. So there was a mechanical system, electromechanical system, probably computerized as well, that gave them a fair warning that something is wrong here. This is at a critical phase of flight. And yeah, they're, they're low and that. slow. I mean, you know, they were maneuvering on a dog leg or at least a, a 90 degree uh, turn to the left to line up with the runway. And it's just like, one, you know that you can't get slow because if you're in a bank turn, your stall speed goes up. Two, the wing isn't properly configured with the flaps. So now your stall speed's high. And three, you're producing zero thrust. Well, to the, uh, well, I'm not gonna say to the credit of the uh, training captain, Eventually, the flaps were reduced to 30 degrees or increased to 30 degrees at the same time that there was no thrust coming out of the engines. So if it was barely controllable at 15 degrees flaps and feathered engines, uh, the condition just got worse after that. Todd, what I don't understand. Sorry, John. Todd, what I don't understand is when the captain asked for 30 degrees and then some time period passed, and then he moves them after he's already moved a handle that he thought was the flaps. That just doesn't make sense. The logic isn't there. And oh, by the way, if you're going to move the flap handle to 30, why didn't you move the condition levers back up to run? <laughs> I mean. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have started then. But the, uh, you know, at 360 feet above the ground, 
when the power went back to nothing. I mean, he they were already, they should have been looking for a place to put it down, not on the airport. Well, again, it's one of those things, John, where, I mean, even after the captain in the left seat handed over control of the airplane to the form, the training captain in the right seat, she told him after she had already told him when she was the flying pilot that the engines were, weren't producing power. After she turned control over to him, she said it again without remedy. Now, the, prelim, the preliminary report doesn't give a lot of detail yet, especially off the FDR and the CBR. And I think this is going to be one of those accidents where you're going to have to have a very detailed timeline, the sequence of events of what was going on between those two pilots. This is a professional flight crew. They're flying for an airline. And as we all know in this business, crew resource management, crew leadership resource, whatever you want to call it, CLR, CRM, whatever, has been around for a long time. And just about every airline around the world has incorporated it. And we've seen accidents. When I was doing a lot of foreign accidents, you get the training records and, yep, there's an eight-hour block for CRM. And then you question, where was CRM? Like in Korean Air going into Guam, 801. They all went to training. They all had the CRM. They all got the check block. But when you look at that particular accident, CRM did not exist. The first officer knew something bad was going to happen when the captain thought that the ILS was still operational. And dutifully, he watched the captain fly him into the ground without saying anything. That is definitely not a principle of CRM. And here you have, again, where was the communication? <laughs> Maybe there was a lot of talking going on, but there wasn't a lot of communicating going on. And that's a huge issue. And I know, John, you and I have had these discussions, not only between pilots, but amongst maintenance personnel as well. You know, communications is key in aviation. And we have lots of high-tech equipment on our airplanes, but we still have problems with basic communication. You know, you go on the ground, mechanics and pilots don't always talk the same, don't always communicate. And, uh, and forget when you start bringing in the other departments, like the baggage handlers, the loaded load control, the rest of it. There's big vertical silos between all of those different departments in there. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed in the report was an absence of how many uh, hours that this uh, training captain had flown recently. I hope that comes up because that, that could be, have an impact on his feel for the controls. And was he cross-trained in other pieces of equipment? which also may uh, cause a problem. Or if he flies his own airplane uh, and doesn't have those, those uh, tactile clues, your hand, the shape of the handles and so on, that uh, that may have had an impact on this. So his background is, is not really explored very much in that preliminary report. Yeah, and, and that's why I think that it's gonna be, you know, um, very critical for the, um, Civil Aviation or Civil Aircraft Accident in, uh, Commission in Nepal to really dissect this. Now, I know they're getting the help. Uh, who is it? The French that are reading out the... Um, it was the uh, Singaporean, Singaporeans. Or Singaporeans, yeah. And I mean, they're very good. We've worked... Uh, I, I was fortunate to work with them in the past with, uh, with Silk Air and a few other accidents. But I mean, they're going to get some good information. 
Now the question is putting all of that information in context and then seeing, I got a feeling this accident happened or at least a sequence of events started well before this airplane ever left the, uh, the originating airport. Um, and getting back to an organizational issue, not just with the airline, but with the uh, Civil Aviation Authority. This was a brand new airport, had just opened less than two weeks, I think 13 days, 14, 13 days or so before this accident. So there's a question of how familiar was the airline with the procedures for flying into this airport? And if all of the uh, uh, guidance for the runway ILS, et cetera, if they were not all fully operational, what uh, things were done to deal with that? Given that three days before this accident, a the same aircraft, different crew, just like this crew had an unstabilized approach, it calls into question, why are they having unstabilized approaches where they're not abandoning the landing, where they're not doing a go around? Yeah. No, I mean, you bring up a good point, Todd, and that is all about operational discipline. This is a VFR flight. So you have a little bit of different, a little different criteria for stabilized approach VFR versus IFR. But the fact is you got criteria and why isn't there an adherence? And you got to look at that from an organizational standpoint. Is that a function of training? Is that a function of, you know, bad policies and procedures? Is that bad oversight? Where was this training captain? Well, I mean, again, the CVR is going to be real interesting. Were they actually going through all the checklist items? Were they stabilized? Were they trying to catch up? Um, were they trying to salvage a bad situation? It's obvious that when both those engines uh, went to feather and were starting to roll back and weren't producing thrust, the training captain, apparently it didn't seem to phase him, even though he was told twice about it by the flying captain. And they didn't really appear to me look like they were trying to remedy that situation before the airplane got real slow. They were in a steep bank turn, 30 degrees, that low, like John was talking about, 300 feet above the ground. Their, their speed was bleeding off. They're losing all that energy. Flying airplanes like that, even little airplanes, it's all about energy management. And if you can't increase the energy to fly, bad things start to happen. And oh, by the way, guess what? It did. The airplane stalled. Now, fortunately, this was a short flight, uh, well under an hour, and presumably the entire conversation from pre-flight to impact is going to be on the CBR. What's unclear to me is whether or not there will be at least a full transcript of this release, because if it turns out there's non-pertinent conversation, well, the nature of that conversation, if there is such a, a sequence of conversations there, it would be important to know. But if the investigators aren't given that in information, and if the general public is unaware of what might have been said in the cockpit, it might call into question the trust the public may have in this airline. And also, this is a brand new airport, heavily funded by a third party. And the airline wanted to have this area of Nepal be very attractive for tourists. And they're trying to attract other airlines from around the region to fly into this airport. So on several levels, there will be pressure at the organizational level of the airline, the organizational level of the government to make sure that this doesn't scare away customers, to be, uh, you know, yeah. be straightforward about this. You know, we've had issues in the States where air traffic control procedures actually put pilots in, a, in an unstabilized approach condition. So uh, we need to pay attention to what the air traffic control says uh, when they finally put out the uh, communications because that could have a whole impact on uh, the pilot's behaviors. So not to, not to 
try to minimize the problems that this crew had, but they may have been a factor in helping them make dumb mistakes. Well, uh, again, in, in, as we talked um, early in the show, and that is, I mean, they're both captains, but you got a training captain. So that doesn't mean anything if you only got 1500 hours of total time. Now, I'm sure that this training captain had a lot more experience than that in, in flight time. But how much flight time did this, this training captain have going into this new airport? And where did they get their training? Were they actually doing flights in there? Were they doing it in a simulator? Were they doing it in a classroom? Talking about the approach procedure? How were they training these trainers to train other pilots? And, and that's going to be, uh, you know, a, an area that, as an investigator, I would definitely want to know, but how were they so unplugged, or at least this training captain was so unplugged from a situation? And and again, sometimes I call this hinting and hoping. I want I would love to know how assertive that uh, flying captain was in the left seat when she realized, hey, these engines aren't really producing power. How assertive or aggressive was she in saying? we got to do something we're you know these engines aren't producing power versus hmm something doesn't feel right these engines don't feel like they're producing power i mean <laughs> there was there a sense of urgency and why were they still in a bank turn i mean level the wings trying to figure out what you got to figure out what's going on here um, yeah they're getting energy in the turn like crazy and now he throws the flaps to 30 what's that do to your en energy i mean yeah. you throwing more energy out the window yeah it's all drag right no it's uh it's going to be an interesting accident to dissect because this is truly going to be uh, a human factors accident which could have some very good information um, for case studies to learn from um, again we've always talked about it that flying <laughs> no matter where you are in the world ain't standardized what we do here in the United States doesn't necessarily translate to Europe, South America, Asia, whatever. Um, the training standards, the training oversight, the discipline, the operational discipline, all of these things. And I think that from a universal standpoint, um, the world has to be looking at a more universal code of operational discipline in their training programs. Because we we put expectations. Look, Boeing took a lot of heat because people don't really understand that when you design an airplane, you have to build certain assumptions into who's going to operate that aircraft. And they got beat up for assuming. Well, guess what? Every airline manufacturer or aircraft manufacturer has, has to use those same assumptions. You're not going to assume that you got a private pilot with 50 hours flying a Boeing 737. There are certain assumptions that you are going to have requisitely qualified people that are going to be operating complex systems in those types of airplanes. And, and so you can have a more universal operational discipline standard in a training program. And then it's a matter of oversight and enforcement to make sure that everybody's playing by the same rule book. Yeah. You know, and we think we have the, we're the best in the world. Although we're good, there are still some other countries in the world that do have much more discipline in the cockpit than we do. So this this is going to be a very valuable accident for pilots across the board, not just commercial. 
pilots about paying attention, being the professional uh, that they're supposed to be, you know, pre-planning what you're doing. Yeah. You know, you, you said it all. I have been in untold number of cockpits commercially where they, I watch these guys throw and switch root met, you know, memory, put the hand up over their head and, and uh, feel and throw the switch over their head. And I can remember one uh, uh, commercial airliner coming out of Los Angeles where the crew did that and shut off the engines. <laughs> remember that? Yeah. Hate when that happens. <laughs> yeah, because Oops. switches and, you know, with this mix and match, sometimes you get with the mergers and with the airlines buying equipment that are coming off lease uh, because they get a good deal. Well, sometimes the cockpits aren't always 100% standardized switches are in different places and if you're relying upon your memory and not looking at what you're doing goodbye and I, I think that's part of what happened with this training captain I think he was trying to look out the window look at the instrument panel look at what the other captain was doing and not paying attention to what he was doing and, and we talk about that all the time John called diversion of attention and is there a little bit of complacency there could be why because this, this training captain is flying with another captain. It's a little different when you're flying with a captain versus flying with a, you know, a first officer or whatever, because the expectation is different. And, and so do you let your guard down a little too much? Did this captain, this training captain, let his guard down a little too much? Why? I mean, she knows what she's doing. She's flying. She's got it under control. This is just a familiarization flight. So, it's all about that operational discipline. And I hope that, you know, the, uh, the investigation will really dig into something like that because there are going to be some valuable lessons learned from this particular accident. Well, let's hope that the people in Singapore and the French uh, or the ATR people uh, make sure that they have that, that investig and the investigation has the discipline to ferret out all those facts. Yeah. As we see, I mean, we even see it in this country where they don't dig deep enough sometimes. So uh, yeah, because uh, we kind of hammer that all the all the time when uh, when we're very critical of the NTSB. So well, before uh, before we wrap up the show, I just want to talk about something real quick. Um, the acting administrator of the FAA, Billy Nolan, was up on the hill um, the week that we're doing this particular show, and. Um, and he uh, he took uh, he took a lot of heat from uh, from the folks up on the hill uh, about safety, about the NOTAM system, about the debacle that happened with Southwest Airlines and and a variety of other things. And I know that uh, he's putting together um, a panel in March to basically study aviation safety, and he's bringing in you know uh, people from the airlines and the manufacturers and that kind of stuff. I've seen this before, John. We've talked about it before when another group similar to this about two years ago to study the, the 737 MAX, they brought in all of these so-called experts. They were all management people that had no clue what's going on on the ground level. And, you know, I hope that, you know, when they put this little group together, yeah, it's one thing to bring in airline people, but you don't bring in the CEO because they have no clue what's going on on the line. And if you really want to improve safety, they need guys like us, the three of us, 
with a you know varied level of experience. We look at things from a safety perspective. We have operational knowledge both above the wing and below the wing. We <laughs> he needs to bring us in, not the CEOs who really don't have that ground level understanding. Bring in pilots, not necessarily management pilots, bring in line pilots. What's going on out there in the real world? Bring in line mechanics. This is the way it's working, not the way management wants it to work um, and things like that. I think that hopefully uh, the acting administrator will bring in that kind of, of uh, expertise. It's one thing to bring in people from the FAA. That's great. I'm not so sure that there's the expertise from the NTSB right now. Um, but that's a, you know, that's just my little pet thing that I talk about all the time because we're so critical of the board in some of the investigations that we've dissected where, guess what? They should have done more, but they should bring in people that at least have that ground level uh, perspective who are, you know, out there in the trenches operating because that's where the safety deficiencies, if any, um, are getting rooted and of course growing. And, um, and it's obvious that when Southwest had their problem, who was the, the most vociferous about that? It sure wasn't management. It was the pilots because of the scheduling system. It was the flight attendants. It was all of the people that are the users of the act or the receivers of the actual system, if you will. And so, you know, the NOTAM system. I mean, come on. There's got to be a simple fix with the technology we have. Really? You only have a central repository? Hell, when I call flight service from Denver, I may be talking to a briefer in West Virginia. So if we can have that kind of technology that gets me you know, to a real-time briefer somewhere else in the country so I can do what I need to do, get a weather briefing or file a flight plan, why can't we have a more robust NOTAM system? And there's got to be a filter because what I need as a general aviation pilot, the airline doesn't technically need for their operation. And so, there, I mean, we can write algorithms. We can do a variety of different high-tech things to make the NOTAM system usable, and it doesn't have to take five years. Greg, you know, you're talking about the, the system where they, they put these study groups together. I mean, they got one that's going to start next week on the ODA. Mm, yeah. System. And I was looking down the list about a month ago. I was looking down the list of who was on it, and it was in like inside pool. Right. And uh, finally, they added a couple of uh, professors, one of which I know very well from uh, USC, who has a very, very thorough safety background in uh, nuclear regulatory stuff. And he's been working uh, with the State Department lately to obviously to work out outside the country on safety. But I mean, if we, it's their playbook. Congress beats up on them. They, oh, we'll do a study. And we bring in the same old people and they tweak the system a little bit, right? And go on and hope that that tweak that they did was enough to, to uh, mitigate the problem so it doesn't come back on their watch, right? So that's the other piece, you know? Uh, it needs a thorough, thorough review, uh, almost a white paper. Yeah. 30 years ago, they were doing those uh, white glove inspections. Yeah. On the airlines, maybe somebody needs to do a white glove inspection on the FAA. Well, the three of us are available to uh, to volunteer our services and our expertise. So they, I, they certainly I, want to, you know, 
They don't want people that they can't uh, control. You know, they're not, they're not going to want. Uh, John, 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 it's not about control. It's about bringing reality to reality. <laughs> well, I, I understand fully what you're saying, but I'm looking at it from the point of view of a, a politician, which senior management in the FAA is, and uh, they're not going to want to have a real meaningful look at themselves. You know, the emperor has no clothes, however that saying goes. You know, they're not going to want somebody to come in there and say, you know, you soiled your pants. They're not going to want that. So, uh, we're just going to get a minor tweaking. We got, we got the same thing with SMS, too. Yeah. They tweak it a little bit. We never really move the ball. You know, I... Well, whatever. We, we have a lot of things to talk about. Absolutely. In the future. So maybe we ought to be thankful that they are so, they are so dysfunctional that they keep giving <laughs> us cannon fodder. Yeah, well, I mean, as much as I, I, I appreciate being with you guys every week and trying to identify things that can uh, we can feed back into the industry and, and help the industry be safer, um, I wouldn't mind, you know, seeing things happen so that at least our involvement starts to dwindle a little bit. That means that somebody's doing their job, the message is getting through, and uh, in aviation and aerospace is becoming safer. So with that, my friend, I will uh, leave it with Todd with the second to the last word before we go to uh, the patriarch. Well... <laughs> What we are doing today in this show is an example of one of the better trends I've seen in the last few decades. That is, because of technology, there's an ability for people throughout the system, either insiders like us or interested parties who are outside the system, to get access to the same data we have. The preliminary we report we have, freely available to all. The videos we talked about of the crash as it was happening, freely available to all. And even if you don't have official expertise in this in this world. If you have an interest and you want to get involved at whatever level, do so. There's no excuse. The data is out there. And John, as always, I will leave you with our last words. And as always, I will just be the preacher again. If you're going to go flying, pre-plan, 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 it starts before you even get to the airport. You know, you've got weather briefings you should have, you know, where you are, where you're going, and everything in between. You've got to do a good pre-flight on your airplane. You should touch your airplane, wiggle things. And, in fact, Greg, uh, we ought to get back one of these shows and talk about how that individual found the wing on the piper. Uh that was ready to come off the airplane, but that's another show. All right, so do a good pre-flight, touch, touch your airplane, and when you finally get in the air, put that head on a swivel, because there's still a lot of traffic out there. There's a heck of a lot of young, inexperienced pilots, not even so much young, just in general, inexperienced pilots out there that may make a mistake and don't let you be part of their mistake. So put that head of yours on a swivel, keep your wits about you, and please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. 
our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.